Our reading this morning, uh, this morning will be from Matthew chapter eight, chapter sixteen. Matthew chapter sixteen. We'll read the. We'll read till uh, verse twenty. Verse verse twenty three. Matthew sixteen. We'll read verses one through twenty three. Matthew 16 and verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to them, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So far the reading of Scripture. Congregation, last week, in the morning, we considered the sermon, what a sermon is, and how best we can profit from it. This morning, I would like to take a look at a church 
What is the church? And you'll notice that the title of the message today is, What is a church? Because that's really more the focus this evening. Not so much what is the church, but what is a church? And of course, there's so much that could be said on this subject. I hope to limit myself this morning to what is in this text. But what is a church? And that's such an important question for us, especially as we begin again as as pastor and and congregation together, that we have a firm understanding uh, and, and a firm biblical understanding of what a church is. And our text leads us directly into that question. Our text this morning is Matthew 6, 16, and this whole section then on verses 13 through 20, where Peter makes this wonderful confession of Christ, the Son of the living God. But again, our text leads us directly in to this whole question of what is a church? Because you can see that in Jesus' question. Because in verse 13, Jesus says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And right there, congregation, immediately we have given us uh, very clearly and very straightforwardly, this is what the church is. The church gives an answer to that question. And this decides what is a church and what is not a church. There may be many different groups of people in the world. But the church is a group of people who answer this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, of course, they give a specific answer to that question. But let us be clear right from the start, congregation, that a church is just this. A gathering, an assembly of people who answer this question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And I almost... You know, the, the text so, so directly answers the question, it's like I could just I could close the sermon right here. And we could all just go home and think about that, right? This is the church. Who do people say the Son of Man? That's sermon and application all wrapped up in just one verse. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? What a, what a direct question right to every single member here this morning. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? You know, I remember when I was interviewed at Puritan Seminary in 2008, I smiled because the question caught me so off guard. It shouldn't have caught me off guard, but it did. And I remember the, the man who was doing the interview, he said, Chris, he said, who is Jesus Christ to you? And I, I was just, I was taken aback by the question. Of course, I should have been able to answer it. You know, you could write a book on that, right? But, but. It just caught me off guard. Who is Jesus Christ to you? But that's really the question, isn't it, that, that comes to us this morning when we think about the church. A, a very negative experience that I had was when a Jehovah's Witness woman came to my door, uh, as you've all experienced, no doubt. And uh, it, it broke my heart, congregation, because this woman, uh, I, I, I drove right to the issue, right? I said, ma'am, I said, uh, do you understand Jesus Christ to be God? Oh, yes, she said, we certainly do. We certainly do. And I said, is Jesus Christ anything less than God Almighty? Oh, now she had to back off, right? Because they don't believe that God is equal with God the Father, right? Jesus is a, is a lesser God, a God with a small g, as, as, as you might say. And that congregation is the question that divides the world. It's the dividing question. 
And it broke my heart to see that woman turn and walk away. Because I thought in my heart, now you're a lost soul. You cannot be saved just so long as you hold to that doctrine, that teaching. That Jesus Christ is anything less than God Almighty. And it's painful, congregation, I hope it's painful to you too. When you see people embrace these kinds of beliefs which bar them from the kingdom of heaven. They love their own destruction. And it's sad, it's heartbreaking to see it. I never forgot that. I could still see that woman walking away to her car. And I was just thinking, you're holding to a belief that will send you to hell eternally. And so that's how serious that is, that question this morning. So congregation, I would like to consider then the church. And I have on the outline there the church's origin, the church in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, and the church in eternity. And then some points of application to make on that. So let's begin then with the church's origin. I don't want to spend any time on this one because, or very little time on this one, because this is what we considered on Christmas Day, remember. We talked about the covenant between God the Father and God the Son in eternity past, where God chose to set his love upon a people. And he gave them to Jesus Christ to be redeemed by him, to be delivered from their sin, to be saved, right? And they agreed, they covenanted together to give the kingdom to Jesus, to give those people to Jesus and that he would come to this earth and give his life a ransom for their salvation. Now again, just a few texts that I've listed there for you. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 20, 1 Peter 1 verse 24, he, that is Jesus, was foreknown. Well, I should read the the previous verse, which says in, in 1 Peter 2 and verse 19, but with precious blood, And and Peter here is talking about being redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, before the world was ever created. But has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So there you have it quite clearly, isn't it? That Jesus was foreknown in eternity, in that covenant of redemption in eternity past. And in these last times he has come for the salvation of and for the actual redemption of his people. And then in Ephesians 1 and verse 3, these words are probably more familiar to you. In Ephesians 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him. So God chose his people, In Christ. Now those are just two very little words. In Him. But they're all important for our understanding this morning. right? That the electing decree of God took place in Christ. In other words, the people of God were considered to be already one and united with Christ in eternity past. Not actually. That would not happen until they believed in Christ in time. But already in in eternity, they were promised and they were joined to Christ in that glorious covenant of, of redemption in eternity past. In Him, it says, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Again, I, I leave that because we, we talked about that quite extensively on Christmas Day. So the church's origin, it always begins in eternity past, doesn't it? All the church's salvation started in God's electing decree in eternity past. And we hold to that strongly don't we, in our churches. 
We always go back into eternity to see the origin of the church. But we come then to the church in the Old Testament. And here too, I don't have a great deal to say on this other than uh, what is, is quite clear that God came into the world by way of covenant and he descended to the person of Abraham and he entered into a covenant with Abraham and he set aside Abraham's family as his people and then Isaac and Jacob until finally this family grew and expanded until it came to be the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel then became the people of God and this is the church in the Old Testament. This is the gathering of God's people in the Old Testament. And if you look in, uh, well, you really don't need to go here, I guess, it's just one word actually in Exodus 12. You find this repeatedly throughout the Old Testament where in Exodus 12, verse 3, God says to Moses, Speak to all the congregation of Israel. The congregation, the gathering, the assembly of Israel. So already in the Old Testament, God has separated unto himself a people. And it started small with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, until it grew and expanded and became finally at Mount Sinai that God entered into another covenant with his people. And he set aside the nation of Israel as his people. They became the people of God, the church, as it, as it will become known as later in the New Testament. So the people of God in the Old Testament centered around the nation of Israel. Now we come then to the fourth point. Here we'll spend uh, more time. The church in the New Testament. Now in the New Testament congregation, the, the language, the terminology switches on us a little bit and that can be confusing. Because in the New Testament we find that Jesus is born he comes to the age when he is now going to begin his public ministry. And what does he say? He says the kingdom of God is here. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Which leads us to wonder, isn't it? Then What is this kingdom of God that Jesus is announcing? Was there not a kingdom already in the Old Testament? What does it mean? What does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom is now here? Well, congregation, that word kingdom is a, is a very unique term. It's actually extremely difficult to translate. When we think of a kingdom, we might think about the kingdom of, of England, right? Or the kingdom of France, right? Which has borders, right? And that's a kingdom. There's a king over it. There's laws and everything. And, and, and that's misleading. In, in the Bible sense, the kingdom is God's reign or his rule. And, and specifically, it's God's reign that people then embrace. Now, obviously, God is always ruling, right? God even rules over the wicked, right? We know that, and that was all through the Old Testament as well. But now Jesus is announcing that the king is here, and of course the king is himself, and the kingdom of God is now here, and people are coming to it. They are embracing it. They are putting their trust in the king. They're becoming citizens, as it were, of, of, of the kingdom of Christ. And this is the language that we see used. And there's a very interesting text given us in Luke 17, which helps us to understand this. In Luke 17, verse 20, the Pharisees come, and it says, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. 
You see, the Pharisees want to know, Jesus, you keep preaching about the kingdom of God. When is it going to come? When are we going to see it? Now, you can already see that they have a mistaken notion of the kingdom, don't they? They're thinking of a kingdom, like I said before. They're thinking of a kingdom with, with borders and with a glorious king marching at the head of a fine army, driving out the Romans, setting the Jews as, as the rulers of their, of their, of their uh, territory, Palestine. That's their idea of a kingdom. And they're like, Jesus, you keep talking about the kingdom, but we don't see anything happening. We don't see you gathering a military. We don't see you gathering of forces. We don't see you training your men for battle. We, you, you don't seem to be saying anything negative about the Romans. When is this going to happen, this kingdom that you keep talking about? And notice what Jesus says in verse 20. He, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. In other words, the kingdom of God is not something visible. You can't see it. It's the reign of God coming into the world and people are submitting themselves to it. Now many of them rebel against it and hate it and fight against it. But there are those people called by God who bow under the scepter of King Jesus. And that now is the kingdom of God. But you can't see it. Congregation, you can just think to yourself, as Jesus is standing on the, in, in Palestine, in, in Capernaum, or, or in Jerusalem, wherever, wherever he did his preaching, and he preaches to a group of people here, and here comes one, and another one, and another one believes, and another one. But you can't see it. All you see is people. But you can't see what's happening in the minds and hearts of each person that's listening to the preaching of Jesus. But now Jesus says the kingdom of God is coming, but not with observation. You can't see it. A person comes. He's convicted of his sin. He comes to Christ. He submits himself to the reign of Jesus. And Jesus says that's the kingdom of God. But that's not something visible. Why we experience that even today. When I preach, I can't tell who, who is hearing with, with faith and who is hearing with unbelief. In fact, isn't that what we talked about last week when we talked about the soils? Remember we said that the seed would be scattered on all these different soils. But on the three soils, no fruit was born. But on the good soil, fruit came to be. And so Jesus says the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. The seed that fell on the thorns looked very good. It sprang up. It had great promise, but it never bore any fruit. Those plants never were counted amongst the kingdom of God. So it does not come with observation. <clears throat> and we know that the kingdom of God is centered on Jesus. It's centered on Jesus. The kingdom is all about the king. And that's why Jesus is always calling people in all of his preaching to come to me, to believe in me. And in, 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 a, in, a, in a thousand other different ways, right? Jesus is talking about me I am the king. This is the kingdom. When you submit to me and to my reign, my rule, you enter into my kingdom. And what is the central question then of the kingdom of God? Who do men say that the Son of Man is? Again, the question is all about the king of the kingdom. And some people respond with faith and some people respond with unbelief. But now we come to our text. 
Now we come to our text, where Jesus has given this central question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then notice in verse 14, Matthew 16 and verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Again, all these people, and again, this fits so well with the parable of the soils, right? Because some people say Elijah, some people say Jeremiah, right? You can think of the seed on the path, the seed on the thorns, the seed on the rocky soil, because those are all wrong answers, aren't they? But then Jesus drives home to the disciples. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And by the way, congregation, in the, in the Greek, in the original of this, the translation is much more distinctive. In, in, verse, uh, in verse 15, but he said to them, but who do you say that I am? In the Greek, the word order is like this. But he said to them, but you, who do you say that I am? In other words, the you is put at the, at the front, at the beginning of the clause for purposes of emphasis. You, who do you say that I am? It's one thing to hear today about what the other people might say and what the Jews over here might say in this group and that group. But now Jesus says, put all those aside. And you, who do you say that I am? And so there's a great emphasis there. And then you see how Peter is, is enabled by the grace of God to give this glorious answer. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So here we have Peter, right? Everybody, you know, other people are saying Jeremiah, Elijah, John the Baptist, so on and so forth, one of the prophets. But now here is Peter. And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And immediately we see Jesus looks at him, right? And says to him, says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Peter, you've now made a confession that shows that this is God's work. God has revealed this to you. And then for our purposes, the 18th verse, for our purposes this morning, this is so critical, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my, and then this is the first time in the Bible we have this word, I will build my church. So now we have a different term. Remember, all along Jesus has been preaching the kingdom of God, which he made very clear does not come with observation. But now he says, Peter, upon you having made that confession, I'm going to build my church. And now this is going to be something different. The kingdom of God is invisible. You can't see who's submitting to it. But now, out of the masses of people to whom Jesus preaches, comes a gathering of people. They gather in a place, and now you can see it, right? You see it with your eyes. The church congregation is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is secret and invisible. People bow under the rule and under the reign of Christ the King. And then they come out and they gather. There's a group here. Here's another group. There's a group here. Some are large groups. Some are very small groups. Some groups are very wealthy. Some groups are very poor. But in all cases, these are now churches. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. 
And the church is now something visible that you can see. It has leadership. There's worship. There's sacraments. There's the life of the church. The church is now visible. And again, later on in the epistles, Paul will, will speak in so many different ways about uh, what a church is. But congregation, before we move on, I would ask you to turn and look at this text with me in Acts chapter 19. Because there's something I want to make very clear to you about this term church. The word church implies, at the very center of the word church, is the idea of a gathering. And I want you to see that in Acts 19. In Acts 19 and verse 32, we have this story of Paul at Ephesus. And remember the great riot that happened at Ephesus. People were so enraged at Paul because he started to uh, break into the trade of the silversmiths. Remember who made uh, statues and, and charms to uh, the, uh, the goddess. And, and there was this great riot. And what's very interesting in terms of our study of the word church is if you look at verse Acts 19 and verse 32, you have this account of the riot. So then some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. The assembly. Now, congregation, that word assembly there is the word church. Again, if, if you can remember, if some of you might even know this word, ecclesia, right? It's the word church. And then in, uh, in, uh, in verse 39, if you drop down to verse 39, where, Paul, or, uh, where uh, um, <clears throat> the man who comes, the magistrate comes, and he says, but if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. That's also the word church. And then it occurs again in verse 41. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly, the word church. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring that up, congregation, to show you that at the very, that the very essence of this term, church, is this idea of a gathering, of an assembly. And you see that even in the, what I'll call, say, the secular use of the word church. Because when Jesus chose a term to call his people and the gathering of his people together, he, he chose a specific term, right? Well, that term was already in existence at the time. It was already used to refer to assemblies, either lawful assemblies, like, say, when magistrates would meet or a congress would meet or something like that, a parliament, but also even riotous assemblies. But the, but the essence of the term is that there is an assembly of some kind. And Jesus chose that word to describe and to label the gatherings of his people. Church. So it's a term with a very specific meaning. And again, at the center of that is this meaning of an assembly. And now Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now many people have said that the rock here is the confession that, Jesus, that Peter made. I think that's incorrect. I think that the, the, the rock here is indeed Peter. <clears throat> but the rock here is Peter having made that confession. Because again, the contrast here is between Peter, who says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the others, right, who either responded in unbelief or who said that Jesus is maybe Elijah or Jeremiah or one of these others. But now Peter says, no, Jesus, you are the Christ. 
And of course, that means you are the king. Christ is the Greek term for Messiah, the anointed one, the king. You are the king of the kingdom, the son of the living God. In other words, you are God himself. And Jesus says, now Peter, having made that confession, represents the church of God and what it's going to become. To those who make that confession, as Peter has here, that is now going to be the church that I am going to build. And so in a sense, Peter falls away and he becomes sort of the, the paradigm, as it were, of a Christian believer. He is one who professes and confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And of course, this, this follows later on in the church history. right? We see that uh, God revealed to Peter first, right? That the, uh, the Gentiles, remember the vision that Peter had with the sheet coming down and all the animals in it? It was to Peter that God first revealed the fact that the gospel was going to include the Gentiles as well, or that the church was going to include the Gentiles as well, and the gospel was to go out to them. And Peter played a leading role in the church. Now, of course, the Roman Catholics have made much more of this, right, saying that Peter is infallible and that there's a successor and that he was at Rome and all that, of course, is, is, there's no uh, truth to that. <clears throat> but let's not, uh, um, let's not forget, though, that Peter still then is that rock, not in his person as a man, but having made that confession. Having made that confession. Peter having made that confession. Well, congregation, then to quickly, the, the, the fifth point there is the church in eternity. Right? And I'll be very brief here. Uh, you know that in Revelation chapter 21, John sees the holy city. Right? That's the, the people of God coming down out of heaven from God. And that's a perfect city. There's no sin tears or suffering in that city ever again. So the church from beginning to end, from its origin in eternity past to its future in eternity future. Well, I know that's a, a lot of things to consider. Let's try to make some points of application on this because especially congregation, this is such a powerful a teaching for our own church here. And my first point of application is a gathering, a gathering. And congregation, it's essential that we understand that the church implies a gathering. During the time of COVID, you remember that we had to cancel church, right? We, we weren't able to gather. And we, we felt the pain of that separation. Uh, and, and that was good. That, that's appropriate. That we felt that this isn't right. That we, we need to be gathering. And uh, of course, there are times, there have always been times throughout the history of the church when when uh, the church's gathering had to stop for a while for, for reasons. And we understand that. But you often would hear people say during these times that, you know, we are the church. And I understand that <clears throat> in its broadest meaning of the church as the people of God, that yes, even when we're not in this building, we are the church. But in a very real sense, biblically, the church is the church when it gathers, when we are together, united in the congregation for worship. That really is the church. And our confessions uh, make that clear. Uh, in, the, in our confession of faith, let me read to you Article 27. Article 27 in, the, in, the, in, the, in our confession, which says this, uh, on the Catholic Christian Church, and listen, to, I'm only going to read the first sentence, we believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation of true Christian believers. 
And then the next article is Article 28, where it says, We believe since this holy congregation is an assembly of those who are saved. And outside of it, there is no salvation. And then it continues to talk about how everybody is under an obligation to join a church and to be a part of the people of God in that sense. But you see how even our confessions put the emphasis on this idea of assembling together. That idea of assembling is at the very center of what it means to be church, even the very term church. Again, as I've showed you, even in in its secular usage, that term church means to gather. It means an assembly. And so, yes, there's that that broader meaning of church where it refers to 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 all Christians everywhere throughout the length and breadth of the earth. But more common in the Bible is that more special term of church as the gathered people of God, the assembled people of God. And that's why we feel so painfully those times when, uh, for good reasons, the church needs to stop gathering, uh, either to stop the spread of a, a disease or whatever it may be, right? In the, in the past days, there was persecution. In World War II, right? The churches were not allowed to gather in more than groups larger than 10, right? And in those times, we feel especially the pain of not being able to gather But congregation for us, where we are able to gather, we need to ask ourselves, is this something that we understand uh, to be of importance, a value? We started the sermon, or the, the service today, by saying the Lord loveth the gates of Zion. Do you love the gates of Zion? We heard very clearly that the Lord loves the gates of Zion. But congregation... This is a question now for us. Do you love the gates of Zion? Do we love the gathering of God's people? You hear often uh, talk today about religionless Christianity, people who are spiritual but not religious, by which they mean to say that they have a religion that is individual. It's just them, their own soul. They, they, they have their own relationship with God and they don't see the need for religion or for a Christianity or for gathering as church. Well, congregation, I trust you've seen I've tried to belabor that point this morning, that the church is a gathering. And the Bible knows no such thing as a Christian apart from Christians. Think about that once. You know that one of Paul's favorite figures for the church was the body of Christ. Now, congregation, is it possible to imagine that you'd have a Christian who wasn't a part of the body of Christ? You know that's ridiculous, right? That Paul... That's inconceivable for the Apostle Paul. You never could have a Christian who wasn't a part of the body of Christ. That's that's not possible. And that's why I say that the Bible will never let us think of a Christian apart from Christians. There needs to be a membership and and a life in the society of Christians, which in the New Testament is called church or assembly, gathering. By the way, congregation, this also has such a, an important effect upon our children. This gathering here in the, in the church. And that's why I'm so thankful that the children gather with us. Sometimes we even have the little children gathering with us, right? And they, they make their presence known sometimes. But what a, what a precious thing that is to hear the children, you know, as they make a, a ruckus sometimes in the church. I, I, I hope that, that that's a, a glad thing for us, right? Because children, too are gathering with us here in this place of worship. And even though they understand very little of what I may be saying here from the pulpit, they understand one thing very clearly. Because children can do that simple calculus in their mind, right? Every morning and every evening, 
we go to church. And we sit here. And I might not understand entirely what's going on. But whatever else I don't understand, I understand this. There's something going on here that's really important. Because dad and mom always bring me here. And sometimes I even have to stay up late. I, I don't like it, congregation, when people say, well, we can't go to church tonight because I have to get my children to bed on time. Make your children stay up late that night because, again, they'll do the math in their minds, right? This must be important because mom and dad are making me stay up late. Or maybe in their mind, they get to stay up late, right? They, they like that. <clears throat> and they realize quickly how important this is. And what a blessing to congregation if you can do even more for your children. And that is when there's a Wednesday night service or a weekday service. And they got to ride past the soccer practice on their way into church. Or the whatever sports practice it may be. Whatever thing they might have going on at school. And they ride past that to get to church. Again, children can do that math in their minds. This must be important. And that little calculus that they can do in their very young minds, congregation, is such a wonderful gift to your children. If your children wake up in the morning and have to ask you, are we going to church this morning? That's probably not a good sign. That's probably not a good sign. Children should know this is, this is something we do. And the only thing that can keep us from gathering here is when I'm sick or when there's some other very important reason. Congregation school outings on Sunday evenings is a wonderful opportunity to teach your children that church is more important than whatever may be taking place at school, whether it's a band practice or a debate team or whatever it may be. What a great opportunity to teach your children. Yeah, we're going to have to miss that because we never miss church. Church is a gathering. So, congregation, a gathering. I trust, I, I trust I've, I've made that point, that uh, the church is a gathering and the Lord loves the gates of Zion. And the second point, congregation, Christ builds his church. My second point, Christ builds his church. And I put in our, our catechism there. And look at the subject and the verb here. I've underlined them for you there. That it's the Son of God who gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community. It's Christ, congregation. It's Jesus that does this. He builds the church. Is Christ building in this church? Christ is building his church, but maybe this morning we, may, we can, we, yeah, I see he's building out there, and, I, and that church is doing really well. They're, they're doing well there. Christ is building there, and over there in this church, they have such an uh, active growing church that, that Christ must be building their congregation is Christ building in this church. And I mean Covenant United Reformed Church. Some of you have pointed out to me that this church used to be three times the size it is now. So is Christ building in this church? Well, there's a very simple way to answer that question, congregation. A very simple way to answer that question. Who do men say that the Son of Man is. Who do you, congregation, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Who is Jesus Christ to us? And congregation, we have a promise in this text 
that where there's even just two or three who say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, there, Christ is building His church. Whether we meet in a barn, whether we meet in the open fields, whether we meet in a beautiful structure like this, that all is unimportant. But today, congregation, as we ask ourselves as a church this morning, is Christ building in Covenant United Reformed Church? Let's ask the deeper question. Who do you say that the Son of Man is? Because congregation, when I hear your answer to that question, and when I hear my own answer to that question, now I can answer, is Jesus building in this church? In congregation, I can say with certainty, based on Jesus' promise here, that if we confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then Christ is working here in this church, in this assembly. Christ is pouring out His Spirit upon us, and the kingdom of God is going forth. It might not be so visible right away, but the kingdom of God is going out. And the church here is that kingdom made visible, and now we can see it. But congregation, we must never get the attitude of so many Americans Right? Which is, how is your church doing? Well, how many people are in it? What does the youth group program look like? I will go to one of your worship services, right? And, and see how lively it is, or how loud it is, or what kind of music you have there, or are there lights and all these different things, right? Congregation, our text narrows it down so simply for us, doesn't it? Who is Jesus Christ? That's the church. And that's the church that Jesus is building. Are there Peters in the midst of this congregation this morning who say, Lord, you are the Christ. And we take our stand on that confession. Jesus says, that's the rock I'm going to build on. And now we, congregation, can have confidence that we are that rock. And that Christ will build his church on those people who make that confession. It was Peter in the New Testament times and actually, in Matthew 18, it's all the apostles. But here this morning, the word of God comes to us and says that to all those who will make that confession, I will build my church. Now, are you looking for it? Are you participating in it? Are you giving yourself to it? Those are further questions. And those are good questions, too. But today, we can just re rejoice in this. And I can say to you, congregation, what Jesus said to Peter. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Covenant United Reformed Church. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And those are precious words, congregation. If God can say that to us this morning. I move to my last point. Imperfect. Because congregation, the <laughs> gathering, the church, the assembly that we have here is imperfect. And I... I don't need to make that clear to you, do I? We all know the imperfections of our own church. We know them very clearly. We know the imperfections of our own person. We know that we often waver in that confession. Congregation, would you believe that the very man who Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church. I didn't count them, but what is it? Six verses or so? Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. That's the man. You want to talk about imperfect? Jesus said to the very man who made that glorious confession, get behind me, Satan. 
Now, congregation, if Jesus can build his church on Peter, then he can build a church here. And with all of our imperfections, and let's work hard to get rid of them. Right? We, we need to put those to death. But at the end of the day, with all of our imperfections, with all our insufficiencies, with all our, to use a modern term, dysfunctions, right? All our dysfunctionalness, or whatever the word might be. Let us cling to that promise that Jesus will build his church even on imperfect stones and rocks like Peter. I want to close by turning to Revelation chapter 7. Because congregation, the imperfection of the church now leads us to long and to expect the perfection of the church that is coming. And in Revelation chapter 7, we see it. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000. What does that mean? Well, there were 12 tribes of Israel and 12,000 from each tribe of Israel comes out to 144,000. And that means, congregation, that no one of God's Israel shall be missing. They will all be there. All 144,000 of them. Not, of course, literal. But all of them will be there. All of God's people, all of His chosen Zion, will come out of each of their tribes. And on that last great day, they will stand before the throne of God with their robes washed white in the blood of Christ. And they will enter into eternal glory. No imperfections then. Even Peter then, he won't be Satan. He won't be standing in the way of the work of God. But he'll enter then and he'll rejoice in God his Savior. So congregation, let the imperfection of our church now lead us to cry out and to pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Yea, come quickly. May God bless these words to us, congregation, for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God and merciful Father, we look at our church, Lord, and we, and, and we confess, Lord, that there is so many imperfections. We confess, Lord, how, how quickly we point out the imperfections of others while missing the imperfections in our own hearts. Lord, we confess that there, are, that there are sins also in this congregation. There are unresolved conflicts, perhaps. There are those who, who have grudges against others. But Lord, this morning we lay them all before thee and we confess them to be what they really are, that is sin, offensive to you. And we pray, O oh God, that you will cleanse this iniquity away from us, even as you have promised when you said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all iniquity. We plead the promise, Lord, the precious promise that you've given us today, where you said that upon this rock you will build your church. And we confess, Lord, we confess, Lord Jesus, you are the Christ, the King, the Son of the living God. And we take our stand on that truth, on that confession, and we pray, O oh God, that you would continue to build your church, that our children and our children's children would grow into that confession and would make it their own and would go forth conquering and to conquer. And that this dark world, O oh Lord, would receive light from this church, that we might be used by you to advance your kingdom. 
that you would work through us to build your church in this world. Lord, remember us in your mercy. Forgive us for our many imperfections. And give us, O oh Lord, to have new courage and new strength to go forward. To make mention of your righteousness, yea, of yours only. I pray, O oh God, that you will bless all those who need you in a special way today. Remember especially the leadership of this church, Lord, which bear up so much responsibility. Lord, will you, will you provide and lead and guide as only you can do? And will you lift up the light of your countenance and let it shine upon us as we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.